Hey Church family, hope you're all doing safe and well. Today's reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, and then uh, verses 21 and 22. It reads, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In verses 21 through 22. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and gave them to me. There is a... Uh, a second reading from the book of James, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And it reads, What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passion are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Take care. Okay, Revive, we are on the 10th commandment now, and um, we're close. We're close to the end of our series. We're going to spend two weeks on this commandment about coveting, about not coveting. And, um, and then we're going to give, so this is the first of two messages today and then next week. And then I want to give you one more message on how the gospel completes the law um, as we complete this really important series on the Ten Commandments, and I hope you've grown much in wisdom and in conviction and really seeing the, the profound relevance of the gospel to so many heart issues. If, you, if you're noticing, all these are heart issues. They're not just easy, like, stop this behavior. They really start somewhere in the heart. And today, especially, it's all in the heart. It's all about what's happening inside your heart and what's happening inside your mind. Because coveting is about your desires and how our desires are broken and how they are actually sinful. And um, it gets very, very little attention here in, in our modern secular world. It's, it's not even a word we really use, coveting, covetousness, do not covet. Um, but it is so important and it is everywhere. Um, it is actually quite impossible to not covet. And it is really cuts right down to the, you know, the broken part of who we are as sinful people living in a fallen world. And here we more than anywhere, you can, it's a pointer to how we need a salvation, a salvation by grace, a power, a, a power that's outside of us. And more than anything, there's no way we can, we have no chance of being able to follow this law. I'm sure you can start to feel this each week that, um, if, 
if murder was just about killing somebody, that seems relatively easy to be able to like handle in terms of your external outward behavior. But soon as you start hearing from Jesus, it has to do with hatred or bitterness or unforgiveness. Now you're starting to realize it's a much more profoundly difficult problem. But today we're talking about covetousness. It's actually quite impossible. And so let's get into it. Um, part one, the prison of covetous desire in the secular life. The prison of covetous desire in the secular life. Part two, what is the daisy in your life? You're like, the daisy? Um, I'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, there's an illustration I'm going to get. It's called about a person named Daisy, okay? What is the daisy in your life? And part three, healing the desires of the curved in soul. That's what I'm going to talk about. Healing the desires of the curved in soul. So let me start this way. Um, if you've been with me for a time, you know that one of my favorite ways of talking about sin, and I've, and I've heard that some of this, this really hit some of you, is from Martin Luther. The great Martin Luther, um, one of the great you know, Protestant reformers, taught that what, what is sin? What does it do? And he talked about, you know, he used this Latin term, the incurvatus of the soul. That the soul isn't outward looking toward God and seeing the world and all of God's beauties and all of his glory and his powers. Instead, the soul is curved in on itself. And your soul, I mean, you, know, you, don't, you, don't, you can't see your soul. <laughs> but do you know that your mind and your heart and how you operate constantly shows evidence of how your soul is? And the way Martin Luther put it, and I learned this from you know, my, my professor at Westminster Seminary, the great Richard Gaffin, he talked about our souls are curved in. And in this issue of covetousness and particularly how we live in a secular culture, so let me, let's review. If, I mean, I'm, I apologize if you are with me and you've heard this many, many times, but it's, it's really important here in, on this message. Secular comes from the Latin word seculum. And seculum simply means the world. And what we mean when we say the secular world is that the world is all the world and that's all there is. And so the Bible does not believe that. The Bible doesn't believe that the seculum, the world, is all there is. The Bible believes there's more to the world than simply this world. There's God. There's the transcendent, that, that which transcends the seculum. And there's more to the world, and there's more to see in the world. There's more to believe about the world. There's more to per perceive, and here's, here's what we're talking about that's really important, to, to desire. So here's, here's what I want to get at. If you live in a secular culture, and which we all do, and you don't think there's a God, or you're not sure if there's a God, or you do believe there's a God, you're a Christian, or you're Jewish, or you're Muslim, or you're Buddhist, well, maybe not Buddhist, because I'm not sure if Buddhists believe in a God, or Mormon, you do believe there's a God, but as you, believe, as you live in a secular culture, the world starts to feel more and more like all there is. And our culture, the messages of our culture and the habits of our culture, nobody's immune from how everybody looks at things. So here's how I want to start. Um, your soul is curved in on itself. And your soul, because it's curved in on itself, 
only looks at the world as if the world is everything, seculum. And you know what that means? That means where do your desires come from? Your desires can only come from the seculum. That's it. Your desires can only come from the horizon of the world. And so let's put it this way. The world thus becomes a kind of like, it seems like it's a really, really large place. But the world starts to become a seemingly large place and the desires of what potential desires you can have in your life. Your life is only inside this world. And what can make your life happy? It comes from like, you have desires and then hopefully you, you, those desires can get fulfilled. Well, where can those desires come from? They can only come from this world. So imagine if you were living in a prison. Where can you get the things that make you happy? It can only come from the prison. And if you live in the seculum and you only believe there's a seculum, there's no heaven or hell, there's no eternal riches or promises, the only place that you're going to, your eyes are going to go for what you desire can only come from the prison, which we call the world. And here, as I'm shutting you up, setting this up, why this command is so profound. So let's, let, let, let me get, let's, let's get into how, note how it says, how, how, how it's said. So um, Deuteronomy 5, verse 21. So here's the command, and I want to review it. It's important. Listen to the words. You shall not covet. Covet your neighbor's wife. That is, um, just covet means to desire. It's, it's, really, it's not a really you know, complicated thing to understand. You just want some, what something that somebody else has. That's it. Somebody else has it. Now you want that. That's it. So here's how the Ten Commandments culminates. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. That's the command. You know what this is? In your world, these are likely to be the desirable things of your world. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Um, we live in the 21st century, and in the 21st century, there's things like movies and uh, photography, and we have images and things from all around the world and even throughout history. So, um, you know, you can just, you don't have to just desire your neighbor's wife, <laughs> you can desire some woman <laughs> from like 30 years ago. And actually, she's old now, and she doesn't look as good as she did back then, but she's probably somebody's wife or maybe ex-wife, and you could desire her. But when this was written, your world would normally be whatever your neighbors have. This would be the, 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 the full entirety of the world. And here's what God knows. Inside your heart, there's an emptiness and an unhappiness and a dissatisfaction. And it's, all, and it's like that empty, gnawing feeling is in you all the time. And how will we 
solve this problem. The way we regularly solve this problem is, you, you, is that your desire is like, I, I have this desire, and if I get this, then this empty, gnawing, constant feeling that I have all the time, if I just get this, then my emptiness can be filled, at least hopefully for a little bit, maybe permanently even. And you know what we fixate on? Things like this. Well, you, you have a neighbor. And you know, let's say you have like, you have, you know, you have, you know, like 10 guys. And um, you're not interested in eight of those women, of his wives. Uh, but the ninth one is kind of fetching. But you don't actually desire her because you've seen her be really, really mean to his, like, no, forget that. But the 10th one, she's really pretty. And she has a way about her. And she's classy. And you wish it, you wished, you could even be married. You could even be married. And you look at your wife and you compare your wife to her. And she's somehow, I mean, because you would never say this out loud, <laughs> better. And when you're alone, when you're alone, you have these dreams and you concoct these little fantasies about being with her. And if it's not exactly her, someone like her. So it doesn't even have to be her. It's like some other woman that's like her. And so let's just, let's just like break it down. So... Um, Let's say you're, you're, you're not even married. Let's say you're single. And throughout your life, you meet various different women. And you meet some guys, some of them are the wives of somebody. So you're age 13 or 17 or 25 or 35 or 45. And you know what you want? You want that one special woman that you met when you were 14 or 17 or 25. And she was special. Or you meet another, you meet some girl, so like you fell in love with this woman or you fantasized about her when you were 14. And um, then you kind of like this girl, you kind of like that girl. But when you were about 24, you met a woman. Oh gosh, she was a lot like her. <laughs> she was a lot like her. So let's just stop for a moment. Can any of you guys relate to this? Oh, I bet you can. Of course, ladies, you all can do it too. And well, here, let's, let's explore other things. Um, it says like, don't, you shouldn't want his ox or his house <laughs> or his donkey. So let, let's just, you know what his, his ox is? That's his money. You know what his house is? Well, that's, well, you know, a house is more than a house. It's like a big house in the right neighborhood. That's, that's a piece of status and of power, and of success, and the glory of your neighbor. Your neighbor was rich, and so he can get this house, and he's super successful, and he even has the right kind of furniture in the house, and then that's the, the classy man's furniture. So you want the house, you want the style, the furniture. The donkey, the donkey is, you know, <laughs> how, like, the work gets done, or how you go, go to, you know, today, that we, today we don't have donkeys, we have cars. 
Let me go to another passage. Um, so this is the passage I read in, in the opening sequence. So this is James chapter 4. Here's how James chapter 4 puts it. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. <laughs> okay, maybe you don't actually murder, but you just stab them in your mind. Well, okay, fine. What's the difference? Not according to Jesus, there isn't much. You covet, there's that word, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Let's just stop for a moment here. That, that word passions, in our culture today, passion is considered a very positive word. I have a passion. I have this passionate dream to make you know, the world a better place, for instance. I have a passion that my children would do, you know, you know, would do great things in life. And, and then when we use the word, that, that's not a bad word. That means you just have a very, very strong desire. That's not bad. But that's not how the Bible uses it. When the Bible uses the word passion, in this context, it's always bad. There's, it's bad. It means a desire that's messed up. It's disordered. The things that should be less are more. And the things that you should only have a kind of like moderate desire for, it's completely out of control. The things you should have really strong desires for is really, really weak and tepid. So for instance, you should have a great desire for holiness. You should have a great desire to want to become a humble person. But if we're really, really honest, most of us have an unbelievably small desire for holiness. And we largely don't even know what humility is. And so, of course, we don't know how to desire it. But um, your neighbor's car, oh, yeah, we have a great desire for that. It's, yeah, I want that. And so it's, it's strange. You liked your car, and then your girlfriend got a new car. And her car was just a little cooler than your car. And you always tended to measure up how well your life was doing compared to your girlfriend. And so you got a job, and her job pays a little bit better than your job, but your job has a little better status than her job. She got a boyfriend, but your boyfriend is a little better looking. Her boyfriend's smarter, but your boyfriend's better looking, <laughs> right? And then she got a car, and it's nicer than your car. It's newer than your car, and your car is kind of beat up and a little bit embarrassing, quite frankly. And now you got to have a car just like hers. See? This is what it's about. Your passions, your disordered desires. And right at the top of the list of the disordered desires is all this covetousness thing that happens in the prison of the seculum. Here's the point I want to make. It's not just about oxes or cars. If your whole life is inside the prison of the seculum, do you know that the most powerful desires in your life might only simply be covetousness? So let me put it this way. So inside of you and your mind, your heart, 
You can only see the little glories of this world. All these glories are just passing away. They're only going to be glorious very, very temporarily. And then, you know, this car is only going to be cool for like about a year, maybe less. But for now, you just got to get it because your girlfriend got that car and now you're behind. And so, so whatever you desire and then grasp and build your life on, it's built on the smallness of secularity. And so what happens is since there's no God and there's no greater glory that lasts forever, these are the only ones, these are the only glories that capture us. We're actually enslaved to little glories. And these are they're the passions that fill our minds, not bigger things. And so let me put it another way. It's always only horizontal. So that's another way of saying secular world. There's nothing above us transcends us. There's no God, kingdom. There's no promises of, 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 of glory. It's purely horizontal. So, you know, where does your eyes look on the horizontal? You look to your left. You look to your right. You look at your friend. You look at your neighbor. You compare. And then when you compare, what has she got? What has he got? I got, I want that. And then some of those are big enough that maybe, so you're like, oh, the car, okay, 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 whatever. I'm sorry, I'm over that. Then maybe one or two of those, it's, you're not just over that. Maybe one or two of those become the central meaning of your life. Now, I want to give you an example. I'm going to, I'm going to take you to a little illustration. I've been thinking all week, weeks actually. So have you read this book? <laughs> so if you can't see this on the video, this is... Um, the Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I asked my kids when they read this book. Uh, two of my kids read it like sophomore year, or junior year in high school. And, and um, it's, um, it's too bad people read this in high school. Everybody should read this book, I think, in their 20s. But if you're in high school, it's actually really great that you read this book. And because this truly is one of the really, really great American novels. You know what this book is about? It's about this. That's what it's about. Now, for those of you who either never read this book, or, you, or it was too long ago, so it was in high school for you, or even if it was in high school, you never paid attention, so let me give you just a quick little brief picture of the story. So this takes place in the early 1920s. In the 1920s, it was, it was called the Roaring Twenties. Some people just started making serious, crazy amounts of money. It was sort of like the dot-com boom of our time. And the rich people lived in, you know, this all takes place in Long Island of New York City. So New York is one of the richest places in the world. Long Island is one of the richest of the richest places in the world. And out in Long Island, they have these two neighborhoods. So they have, apparently they have, this, they have this inlet of water, and then out here they call this East Egg, I mean West Egg, and over here they call this East Egg. And in West Egg and East Egg, where there's crazy amounts of money. People who are incredibly successful. And you and I, you guys know what this is like. We live in Silicon Valley. You know what Silicon Valley is? It's the same thing. It's 21st century Long Island. Same thing. Except, you know, they call it West Egg and East Egg. We call it Los Altos Hills or Atherton. You know, these are the neighborhoods that are the equivalent of East Egg, West Egg. And, you know, maybe a little bit more toward the South Bay, we have like Saratoga, we have Los Gatos, right? There isn't like just kind of money up there. There's insane amounts of money up there. 
So what takes place is this. It's in the young man, it's narrated by some guy who's observing this, who comes out of Yale. So he's used to coming out of the very privileged. He's, he, he's, he's coming from the privileged circles. And he has a cousin, and her name is Daisy. Here we go. And she's married to a guy named Tom Buchanan. And Tom Buchanan is absolutely loaded. And you know where he lives? He lives in East Egg. And this guy named Nick, you know, he's kind of, he goes to New York. He's kind of bumming, getting a job in New York City. And he rents a little house, a relatively, a relatively uh, modest house in West Egg. And West Egg is rich, but in status, it's considered lower. It's, where it's, it's called, you ever heard this term nouveau riche? It means new money, new re, the new rich. And the old money, the people who really, really have the money and have all the fine stuff, they usually look down on the new money. So here we go. We got, we got the old money, Tom and Daisy Buchanan on East Egg. And we got new money on West Egg. And Nick is living there. And his next door neighbor is a guy he actually met before. And um, his name is, well, his name is actually James Gatz. But he takes on this name, Jay Gatsby. So here's the background story. James Gatz is from like, like South Dakota and grew up in Minnesota. He, he grew up not dirt poor, but middle class. And compared to these folks out in West and East Egg, that's poor. That's like, a, like basically nothing. The difference between middle class and really poor is nothing to a person this rich. Anybody who's in the middle class is just, just poor, just beneath us. And somewhere in his youth, when he was in, in the military, um, James Gatz fell in love with a young woman in his teenage years. Her name was Daisy, before she was married. And Daisy came from money, and they fell in love. But then he had to go off to the war or something like that, and then she left him. And she married this guy, named Tom Buchanan. And so she's from the really classy upper class, and then she goes off. And you know what? Here's what, here's what um, James Gatz does when he comes back from military and so forth. He somehow finds a way. He says, I got to go get Daisy, even though he knows she's married. And, um, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. So somehow... And it doesn't exactly tell you how in the book. But through some kind of unethical means, he gets seriously rich. And then he sets up a house on West Egg, but he's like too afraid to actually knock on the door and actually go talk to Daisy, even though he knows exactly where she lives. And so what he does every night is he kind of comes out to the inlet. He stares out at um, East Egg, and there's this green light that pulsates, that like says, Daisy's over there. And what he does is he throws these, he blows crazy amounts of money to blow these, to throw these crazy parties and just people just show up and they don't even care who the heck he is. And his whole point was hopefully that somewhere Daisy would walk in to the party so he could woo her again. Five years. So that's the story. So I want to show you, share with you something. You're like, well, that's an interesting story. So I want to give you a description of how the, 
how, how F. Scott Fitzgerald describes Daisy. So here's, here's how he describes her early in the book and then later on. It goes like this. So it goes this. So, um, I looked at my cousin. This is Nick Carraway talking about Daisy. Who began to ask me questions in her low, thrilling voice. She has a thrilling voice. It's not her looks. It's her voice. She has a thrilling voice. It was the kind of voice that the ear follows up and down. As if each species is an arrangement of notes that will never be played again. Um, <clears throat> um, it was... Um, as if each piece of notes that will never be played again. Her face was sad, it's interesting, and lovely, with bright things in it, bright eyes and bright, passionate mouth. But there was an excitement in her voice that men who had cared for her found very difficult to forget. A singing compulsion, a whispered listen, a promise that she had done happy, exciting things just a little while since, and that there were happy, exciting things that were hovering the very next hour. This is Daisy's power, right? And so later on, when Nick um, gets to know her, he has another conversation, and then here is what James Gatz, Jay Gatsby, what he says. I'll get some whiskeys. You know, he said, oh, I can't say anything in this house. And then, and then here's what Jay Gatsby says. She's got an indiscreet voice. Actually, that's what um, Nick says. She's got an indiscreet voice. She kind of just, this voice just kind of comes out, interrupts. It's full of, um, it's full of, and all of a sudden, James Gatsby says this. Jay Gatsby says this. It's full of money. It's full of money. That was it. I'd never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in her voice. The jingle in it, the symbol song of it, high in a white palace, she was the king's daughter, the golden girl. You guys ever wonder why you like a particular girl or a particular guy? And why you fixate on that guy? And you know you're not supposed to like that person's, you know, boyfriend or, you know, that guy's wife, but you just can't help it. You just can't help it. It's because sometimes, somewhere in this thing, there's a glory in this person. It may not even be in their looks. It could be in their voice. And there's something that's calling out to you from the world, from the secular prison, and it owns you. And your whole life, you fantasize, if I could just have her or this, and your life is built on covetousness. That's part one. Okay? I'm going to part two. I'm going to ask you a question. And ask you a question. What is the daisy in your life? And I'll give you a tip. What do you fantasize about in your life? What are your dreams? If your dreams don't have anything to do with God, your dreams, the things that like you're bored and you're feeling like sad, that 
your dreams have nothing to do with God, then, 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 um, then it probably is this. There's a daisy, or maybe even one or more daisies. I want to tell you a couple things. Um, one, this is how the world works. It doesn't have to be a girl. Um, I don't know if you know this, but all the big businesses around us have figured out the covetousness. They could shackle your heart with covetousness. Like so much marketing is built on covetousness. I don't know if you end this. And I don't know if you know this, um, that cool, what is cool? Okay, l- l- let me give you a picture of what's cool. You have a neighbor. Maybe it started when you were in school. She was the prettiest girl in the school. You know what she does? She gets a certain hairdo or she gets a certain kind of dress or there's a cool dude at school and he gets a certain jacket. And then he basically walks around because he's got this thing called cool. And that jacket represents his cool. And now some of his friends get that jacket. And then inside this little circle are the special people. And then the other people that are like closer to the inner circle, the special people, they start getting that jacket. And then they lord it over everybody else. And you're just a regular person. You're not one of the cool people. You don't have that hair and you don't have that jacket. And you know what that means? So then, you know what happens? So then, so then some of the so, somewhat more cool people get the jacket and then somewhat more cool. And then finally, the really regular people and then the really uncool people finally get the jacket. Now everybody's wearing that jacket. Everybody's got that hair, hair color. You know what then happens? Then here's what happens. Then the cool people then change the hairstyle <laughs> and change the jacket. So right now we're in the skinny pants period. But there was like the baggy pants period. There was the sagging pants period. Right now we are in the period where we're in the dark horned rimmed glasses, which to me totally says 1950s dad look. That's the cool. It's crazy to me because I think it's so ugly. (laughs) And so you have all these pretty women that wear, I think, ugly glasses and actually literally make themselves ugly, but they're cool. And as soon as all the really uncool people covet, covet, they all go buy this thing, then everybody will change. This is why you got to get new clothes. <laughs> it's covetousness. Um, I said this before, a donkey's not a donkey, it's a car. And so um, I've, I've shared some of this with you guys. There's a little symbol. It's a blue, blue and white checkered symbol. You guys know which symbol I'm talking about? You know? And so they give you an icon of the symbol of the donkey. <laughs> the 21st century donkey is called the car, and a car ain't just a car. And the cool people came up with that symbol to say, if you get this, you don't just drive a car, you drive the ultimate driving machine. And when I was 17 years old, my daisy was the ultimate driving machine. That was my daisy. And since I'm not athletic, I'm not going to do it by getting into the MBA, I'm a nerd. I got to get all A's and get 
high SAT scores, and the school will be my pathway for that donkey. That was. And of course, I want a girl that likes the, that kind of donkey. <laughs> and she look really, really good. And she knows how to dress in the same way that, I mean, you can't dress, in, like you can't get your clothes from Goodwill. Are you, gonna, are you gonna shop at Target and then step into the ultimate driving machine and then your girlfriend gets her clothes from Target and s- sits in the ultimate driving machine? That's, that's dumb, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So I I want a girl that fits in the ultimate driving machine. That's Daisy. That's Daisy. And you see it? Like the whole dang life, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I actually love Jesus. But you know, there's this place in in James chapter four, it talks about being a double-minded man. I actually love Jesus, but you know what I love more? I love Daisy more. (laughs) And if you don't even have Jesus, you don't even have a chance of even being a double-minded man, which the Bible thinks is bad. By the way, you're just a slave into the prison of the secular. That's it. The heart is fixated on your daisy. I don't ask you that question. And today, there is no easy way to deal with this thing. And I want to say this to you now. If you, you can't just have Jesus. Jesus, your savior. He paid for my sins. He really loves me. All of us love this about Jesus. If you know you're a sinner, of course you love this about Jesus because he gives, he solves the worst problem about you but this is actually not the biggest, biggest, biggest problem about you. It's that you don't even really, really want Jesus more than Daisy. That's actually one of the worst problems about you. You live in a prison. I live in a prison. We call it, it's, it, seem, it seems like a really big place. It seems like a really great prison, except it's called Silicon Valley, not West Egg. And we got our daisies. And... We don't know how to want and desire more than that. We build on life on the sin of covetousness. It's, a, it's like, it's like a, a shackle of a heart. And what we need from the gospel, and it only can come from the gospel, is a glory far greater. It's the only a greater glory can break the shackles of covetousness. So I want to close this way, right? How can there be healing for the desires of the incurvatus, what I call the curved-in soul, the, the secularized brokenness? And so Jesus is in the back seat. He's back there. Daisy, you want in the front seat. <laughs> Daisy, she's maybe not in the front seat, but you've got to work really hard to get her here. I mean, James Gatz, he did everything. Worked, lived five years, broke laws. Who knows what he did to get that money and then to go get her. And I want to close this way. What is at stake in your prayer life? That's the question I want to ask you. 
What is at stake in your prayer? Like, oh gosh, pastor, you get to my prayer? After setting the whole dang thing up and tell us that we totally suck, I suck, I'm totally in trouble, I'm enslaved, I'm in prison. Now you're gonna talk about prayer. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna talk about. I wanna say this to you now, and this is, might sound like a tough word, but it's, it's really, I'm loving you. If you got no prayer life, you're just enslaved. The prison's all you got, and Daisy's all you got. Most of the time, you just want Daisy. And then, like, when chasing after Daisy breaks your life, then you go running to Jesus. Oh, please help me, Jesus. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm totally screwed. My wife hates me. Help me, Jesus. But actually, you need Jesus to be bigger than your Daisy. If you've got no prayer life, that cannot happen. And let me just say it this way. So you look outside into the world... It looks like a really, really big place, doesn't it? It's not. The world's not a big place. It's a small place. And whatever glory is in it, they're all going to pass away. You know, just, you know, recently I watched The Last Dance, this documentary about Michael Jordan. You know, there's kids who don't care about Michael Jordan. <laughs> and he's the greatest basketball player that's ever, ever lived. That glory's gone, get it? The world seems like a big place. Michael Jordan's glory was great, right? No, it's already, it's already gone. It's already gone away. So you look inside yourself. You're in the room by yourself. You're praying to God. You know, like, oh, I can't pay attention. Uh, I'm like, I sit still. And you're like, it's just me. It's me sitting in this room. And you look into your heart and your mind and your soul, and that doesn't, it seems like a small place. Let me tell you, that's wrong. It's, absolutely 100% completely wrong and backwards. Inside of you is infinite space. Inside of you is a, absolutely, it's a huge space. You can never get to the end of it. And actually, you think you know yourself, you don't, right? But outside, the world, which seems like a big place, is small. That's the truth. That's the way the Bible presents it. Why is the inside of you an infinitely big space? And here's why. Because you're made in the image of God. And God made you so that he can come and dwell inside of you. <laughs> and God can't put himself into a cramped space. He goes, I'm going to build an infinite home. See, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know what they all do? They dwell in each other. They're all God, so they're like infinite space inside each other. It's like it's never cramped. It's not claustrophobic inside of another person. Now, you guys have sometimes know what that's like. You meet a person, and they're so narrow-minded and so mean, and like they want to shove you into their life, and it, it's like it's, it's, you really can feel like it's a prison. But if you go into the world, it's just a slightly bigger version of that. That's it. But... If you can get into your space inside of who you are in prayer and God can be in there, you can be with the infinite one, the glorious one. And if you can begin to see what makes him so beautiful and so compelling, now Daisy doesn't look so interesting. And you don't just fantasize about your daisies. Someone else 
something else can be inside the infinite space of who you are in your prayer life. And when you go out into the world, you don't go out to the seculum. You go out into eternity with an infinite one, with an infinite glory. This is how you can have a healing of the incarnatus of your soul. So let's close this way. There's a verse. It's one of my favorite, favorite verses in the Bible and I want to give it to you. It goes like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness. It's dark in there. It's dark in your inside. Let light, God sh- let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So let me close this way. You know, God is like, he's like an invisible, infinite being. He's up there. Like, okay, you know, when we have these imaginations, you know, we like, is he, is he like some great grandfather, like shining lights with like, you know, white beard? That's kind of like probably how you and I might imagine God. And it's, of course, that's, that's never going to defeat Daisy. It's never going to defeat Daisy. But there's a person, and he came into the seculum, and he broke the world's seculum. All the stuff on top that we usually chase after and that were hook us as daisies, that's how the world inside the seculum works. And this person is Jesus. He came into the world. He went to the bottom, bottom of the world. And he came to be patient. He came to laugh. He came to be with you and me. And all this imprisoned junk and darkness and sit with you. And no matter what breaks you or you break yourself, he said, all that thing, put it on me. You fail again and fail again. I'll be with you. Can you walk with him? And he'll give you purposes. He gives you promises. If you Watch, if you believe me and obey this, there will be a reward on that side. There's a reward. There's a beauty in this reward. Nobody can ever take it away from you. Not money, not fame, not your hair, not your car. I'm going to give you this with me. It's on the other side, what I've won for you on the other side of the cross. And anytime you fall down and fail, I understand because that's exactly why I took the cross for you. That's the person you need to have in your prayer life. That's the person when you're sitting there, you're talking to him. And once you, his words start to come to you and he starts to shine out something bigger and more and greater and eternal, you have a chance, you have a fight. So brothers and sisters, um, I actually do this strange little thing. I'm driving in the car. <laughs> I often put something in the right seat. And then I go, oh, yes. Sorry, Jesus. <laughs> I take that stuff off the seat, and I take it off. And it's great, because he's like a man who is God. 
and the infinite one is in my space. And now I converse. And I start thinking about the things he said and his words and what I'm afraid of and how I failed, but what I long for. And all his new longings come into me. And he starts dwelling in my space. The, the Bible calls us tabernacle with you, to come dwell with you. And he breaks the secularity and will give you power to live beyond covetousness and give you real joy. Let's pray. Lord, break the shackles of our enslaved desires. And we pray, Lord, that I don't know, today, maybe we can't say this. Daisy, you are not my hope. Jesus, I don't even know how to desire you more than Daisy. But would you give me just the first steps of being with you and desiring you so that I can be free and not enslaved and have a joy that can withstand all things and not be destroyed and crushed by my daisies. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with restless, covetous people, adulterous hearts, and take us into your great joys and your great promises. Help us to believe in this and live with you and for you. In Jesus' name.